Uh, welcome to another episode of The Intellectuals. Our guest today is Charles Love, uh, but before I introduce Charles, uh, a few administrative comments. Uh, my name is Ron Scott. I am the host for The Intellectuals. <clears throat> I am a co-founder and vice president for a nonprofit called Stand Together Against Racism and Radicalism in the Services. You can learn more about our organization at www.stars.us. That's stars with two R's. Our guest today is Charles Love. And uh, I'll tell you, I, I didn't know a lot about Charles uh, before about a week ago, uh, but I am extremely impressed not only with the quality of, of his research and writing, but with his uh, work with uh, an outfit that I'll talk to you about in a second. I'd like to cover a couple of administrative matters before we get in to the introduction and the questions. <clears throat> First thing I'd like to do is to thank CD Media for graciously providing a platform for these important conversations. I also want to thank retired Navy Captain Brent Ramsey, uh, the producer for these uh, uh, broadcasts. And finally, a word about intellectuals. Uh, a good friend of mine suggested we change the name of the program because the word intellectual has a negative connotation. I'm sure Charles would agree with me. Uh, the definition of intellect, the power of knowing as distinguished from the power to feel and to will, the capacity for knowledge, the capacity for rational or intelligent thought, especially when highly developed. Now, that's all positive. And it speaks to the journey we've uh, traveled throughout several millennia in learning of what truth is, what justice is. So intellect plays a very important role in that. So I think the title of the program is very appropriate. And to dispel a lot of the uh, concerns about intellectuals who took a different path. And F.A. Hayek wrote a very uh, important essay back earlier in the 20th century with the title Intellectuals and Socialism. And so I think that's a good segue uh, to really talk about what we're gonna talk about today. And so with that, let me introduce our guest. Charles Love is the Executive Director of Seeking Educational Excellence, a nonprofit whose mission is to empower disadvantaged students to reach their full potential. C understands that education and re and marketing are important life skills, excuse me, education and marketable life skills are the keys to success regardless of race. Therefore, C's mission is to focus on STEM and end the social justice agenda in academia. He is the host of the Charles Love Show on AM560, The Answer, and co-host of the Cut the Bull podcast, Charles is a scholar at the 1776 Unites, a contributing writer at City Journal, and the author of three books, Logic, The Truth About Blacks and the Republican Party, We Want Equality, How the Fight for Equality Gave Way to Preference, and most recently in a book that I enjoyed reading, Race Crazy, BLM, 1619, and the Progressive Racism Movement. Charles is featured in a, a number of different periodicals. He's appeared on shows like Fox News and Newsmax, and he is a leading voice on an important subject that right now divides America. Welcome to the program, Charles. 
Thanks for having me. I uh, hope I can live up to that grandiose uh, introduction. Oh. And, and I like the explanation of the uh, the name of the show because, you know, people definitely today have a different understanding of intellectuals. And it's, uh, you know, I say the same thing about patriot. Maybe we'll get to that. But, you know, negative connotation has a, I mean, you look up the definition, it's totally fine. And nowhere in that intellectual definition you gave, did it say an intellectual is someone with a PhD from seven different schools and all this other kind of thing, which is the way they look at it now. So I think that um, I, I, I take this approach very seriously, but I look at it differently than a lot of people. So I think uh, I welcome the opportunity and I think this is a, a great what you're doing. Great. Thanks, Charles. <clears throat> well, let's start right out with uh, maybe share with us a little bit more of your background. Uh, and tell us about your journey from Gary, Indiana, to where you are today, affiliated with both 1776 Unites and Seeking Educational Excellence. Right. So, um, like you said, I was born and raised in Gary, Indiana, which um, is uh, not, you know, it, it gives me a unique perspective into what, what, what people talk about the, the topic of race, uh, because you hear a lot of negatives, and I definitely saw my share but growing up in a majority black community, you're kind of insulated, right? So it's a little different. I, I, you, you, you get, ex, you know, kind of exposed to what you're exposed to. You get used to it and it becomes the norm for you. So until I grew up and started speaking to other people, it, particularly even other blacks, did I really notice the difference? And there's pros and cons to everything. But looking at the pros, I felt that I was fortunate in a sense uh, growing up the way I did. Not that I am an advocate of... Uh, intentionally doing it or think everybody should stay in their silos. But what I found that was different, I would find that a lot of Blacks who grew up in suburban areas or grew up in different big cities had a different view about Blacks. And, and surprisingly, it was a bit more negative than me and the people I grew up with. And I wondered why. And I realized, so they saw the same news, the same TV shows, um, and the same stereotypes of Black, which were mostly negative, right? And I saw them too. The difference is they didn't have as much to counterbalance that as I did. And when I say that, it means, so I grew up in Gary, Indiana. It's the majority, at the time, it was the, probably the largest, it had the largest percentage of Blacks of any city in the country, more than D.C. and Atlanta at the time. And so everybody I saw was Black, right? Except for a few, you know, you had some older teachers who were close to retirement that didn't leave like everyone else. So yeah, I saw crime and drugs and all this other stuff. However, I saw successful people, lawyers, doctors, chief of police, and all that kind of thing. And all of them were black too. So I never mentally tied being black to some stereotypes. So I'm like, yeah, so some black people rock people and some black people, you know, become business owners. It's no big deal. And so I was shocked when I met people who didn't have that, that outlook on it. So I noticed this stuff, but you know, as a typical 20 something year old, I didn't talk about it. I was going on living my life. But then I started to notice that the culture was changing. So another difference with me is that I didn't get into this particularly from a race or definitely not from a political standpoint. It was just, wow, things are different. When, you know, you know, it's like an old man saying, back in my day, but I was like 24. And I was like, you know, this seems odd that we're moving in this direction that what has been considered norms for millennia is now, you know, wrong to say. And this is even in the late 90s when I started to notice this stuff. So I started to notice and speak about it to my friends, but not really write about it. And then um, when Obama won, I noticed that people were saying some things politically that they didn't really understand. So then I started to talk more and ask questions and things of that nature, which is how I started to 
write and talk about this stuff. But as far as the connections you talk about in the last, you know, four or five years, and, you know, obviously even more in the last two, everything seemed to be centered around race. And my simple approach was, okay, now what? Um, you are ignoring the fact that things are incredibly better than they've ever been. So you can point out any flaws you want to fix, but you have to acknowledge some positives, which you don't do. And how do you want to fix it? Even if it is that bad, what are your solutions? And no one really offered any. So I said, okay, some, no one's really talking about this. So I'm going to take my unique approach and start to talk about this. So I started to write about the extreme views on race, the stereotypes that Blacks were falling into, even though they didn't live a life that was similar to that, but they were buying into it and, and what that does for the next generation and for their psyche. And started writing about this and people eventually started to pick it up and you know reach out and contact me. And that's how I kind of made it to the news stations and, and uh, got offers to write more articles and ended up joining 1776. Wow, that's incredible, Charles. And as I listen to you describe that, the big question that comes to my mind, why? What what motivated you to start that journey? Well, I just felt that no one else was doing it the way I do it. So your show is the intellectual, so it's a perfect segue here. So I am the way people explain it today, not what people would consider an academic or you know an intellectual scholar, right? I you know don't have a PhD. I didn't do all this kind of stuff, but but. I, I read a lot and I understand, I, I, I think the classics are so important and I read them all and and I think it's a void of that in, in younger generations. So, but the difference is I don't necessarily, I haven't been trained to speak the way, you know, a quote unquote intellectual speaks. So I look at myself, my, my job in this whole movement to stop the extremes and to get people to logically think is to think logically, but also to be kind of like, a, a translator. So to be the in-between, the go-between from the intellectuals and the academics to everyone else, because a lot of the academics write on every subject on every side of it. So there's a lot of great stuff out there. But the problem is what they tend to do is they write for other academics. So you have, you write something, somebody at another university agrees with you and, and writes something and, and kind of mentions your work or they disagree with you. But you're not solving the problem because the, the, we're forgetting that the academics are such a small percentage of the population. So if racism is as bad as the, the left is saying, or the culture is shifting as bad as the rest of us are saying, we need a solution somewhere in the middle. And we can't find a solution with, for something with three in a country with 330 million people without including the bus drivers, the school teachers, the truck drivers, and the factory worker. But they're not going to read those books, right? They're not listening to the shows that the, where the people are talking about it. So I feel that I, I got involved because I thought that I could lend a voice to people. So take those writings and those speeches and those things that people, the research that people are doing and translate it to people in a way that's really simple. You know, most people understand things through examples, their personal experience and stories. So I can spin a story or tell an, or give an example or tell about everyday life in a way. So take something an economist writes and translate it to, okay, this is how it pertains to you when you think it does it. And I think that's what's really important and what's missing. So that's the reason why I felt it was important to get involved. And from an educational standpoint, I just think that, you know, politically, the Republicans and those who are conservative and right-leaning, 
um, although they're fighting against it now, they are partially a cause of what happened because when they started to see this happening, they kind of abdicated their responsibility. They said, well, I'll just take my kids out of school. I'll move to the suburbs. We'll create these, you know, we'll push for charter schools. We'll push for school choice. But even if we win all those fights, 80% of the kids aren't going to, there's not enough slots for them. I mean, they'll be building schools for 15 years, but for the kids in school, K through 12 right now, they will never, 80% of them will never make it into one of those schools. So what do we do for them? So they're still going to be in that, in, in the community, in the next generation, they're still going to be upset about their lack of opportunity. So what do we do from there? What are the solutions? So that's what I wanted to focus on. And that's what we did at C. Obviously, we, with after George Floyd died, we can talk about that. We had to kind of shift our focus. But initially, it was just like, okay, giving you your argument. Racism is the reason there's a gap in education in the Black community. But it's already here. So racism isn't going to be the solution to the problem. So we want to solve the problem. We need to focus on the root of the problem. We need to get math and reading scores up. We need to get them interested in something else. If you want more engineers, you can't take an engineering firm and just have them get woke and say, I vow to hire more black engineers because where are they going to get them from? Yeah. Right. You need the people who have the degrees in engineering. And to get that, you need people with the math and science skills, uh, scores and skills in order to get into that program in college, which means you need to filter from the bottom. You need to put the opportunity and the skills at the bottom. You need to get people interested in doing it in you know sixth grade. So that's what we wanted to do. We want to focus on how we can get people, uh, put people in the best positions. Because lastly, I'll say this, whatever your views on racism, most people agree it exists, but we, we differ on the percentage. Whether it's 3%, or, you know, 86%. One thing, if we're honest, that we can all agree on is that, you know, I ask everybody I know, think of all the Black people you know, think of the ones that have letters behind their name, MB, MDs, CPA, whatever the case may be, PE, and how many of them are unemployed? To a person, left, right, and center, they all say zero. Hmm. So I can't solve racism, but it sounds like if we give people the right skills, we can eliminate the income problem, we can eliminate the education problem, we can eliminate half the problems if we focus on the right thing. But just saying race all the time is not going to do anything. We'll be in the same place that we are. It's the reason why people are marching two days ago saying, this is like Jim Crow 2.0, right? Because in their mind, nothing's changed. Although, you know, everybody in their circle is doing much better. But you're going to stay in this in this perpetual, you know, cycle of negativity until you actually do something that makes a difference. Well, ironically, Charles, coming from Gary, Indiana, you're familiar with Horace Mann. That's where, I, oh yeah, the man, the man. I went to high school named after him, so of course I know who he was. <laughs> sort of considered the founder of public school education, education in America. Yeah. Uh, Fox Nation recently put out a uh, five-part documentary titled "The Miseducation of America." If you haven't had a chance to to observe it, I, I think you would appreciate it because a lot of the things that you're talking about they presented uh, in that documentary uh, very very powerful, but. I want to segue to your book. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I really enjoyed reading this because, like you said, you you really presented it in a way that the ordinary person can read it and understand it, which says an awful lot because it, it, it takes a tremendous skill and aptitude to be able to take complicated concepts and, and to be able to situate it in a way that, that people can see it and clearly understand it. Mm -hmm. So what would you say were the biggest takeaways from this book? Well, I think that um, one before the takeaway, I would say what I thought was it was important to do is it's important. I know who my target audience is. It's really twofold. To conservatives, I'm saying you need to craft a better message. 
whether you're right or wrong, you're not reaching the people the way you need to do, shift your, the way you, you address it. And to liberals, I want to say most liberals aren't leftists. There is a distinction. You can never have voted Republican in your life, but you don't like the fact that today you're being called a racist and all these other things. So you need to speak up. And to you or to those uh, those executives who are giving money to BLM, you need to know who you're giving money to. So because my audience is a little bit different than, say, the Fox News and places like that, my approach is different. So one thing I do, so I may say that I think that the left is wrong and lay out my reasons why I personally think they're wrong, that my opinion. But then I say, some people read this and say, well, I think you're wrong. I think they're totally fine. So to them, I say, okay, what I do, I take it a step further and say, give them the argument. Let's assume you're right. Is what you're doing going to lead to the solution that you want, right? So one, one thing that's important to say as far as a takeaway is like my last book, I try, I make it, it's hard to do as you say. The harder part is you, you have to source your, your, your material so people know what you're doing. It is intentional for me not to draw from conservative sites, conservative articles, conservative books, whatever the case may be. Because then, you know, my audience is partially liberal. So they'll say, yeah, because you're quoting Tucker, you're quoting this, you know, Thomas Sowell, this right winger. So for the most part, like uh, I think in my last book, We Want Equality, there was only one citation from a conservative site. It was because there was a particular story I wanted to tell and no one else ran the story. Other than that, everything was Think Progress, CNN, uh, Washington Post, all that kind of thing. Because I don't want you to, you can disagree with me, but what you will not do is come back to me and say, that's just a right-wing talking point and you're only using right-wing sources. That's number one. And the other thing is I wanted people, because I understood that there are benevolent whites out there who are just like, George Floyd's death was bad. If blacks are saying that there's something unfair with the policing that's happening, I take their word at it because I'm not black. So I understand that th their plight. I'm not going down to the neighborhood to have long conversations with them. I can't do that. So what can I do? I can take my dollar and I can you know, support them. Totally fine. But then they give the money to the BLM organization not knowing what it means. So I list what they believe because I want them to know. Now, if you still think you want to do that, you need to find another way to help because you're not helping. They're not focused on the black community. And you need to understand where your money is going because it is going against your own best interest. And I say that in the sense that I think the media, we give, we beat up on the media, often deservedly so. And we say that they're biased and they are more biased against the right, but they are also changed the way they report the news, like Batya Unger Sagan's new book, uh, Bad News. It's all about like these sound bites and how you can get clicks. So even the people that are friendly to a Nancy Pelosi or some Democrat, they don't do them justice. Really, it's all sound bites. I talk for 17 minutes, you get my 30-second bite. So I didn't want to do that to the left. So what I did was when I put in quotes, it's full paragraphs, right? It's this is their entire platform. So this is what they say. You tell me as the executive of Nike donating this money to them when they're openly saying we're anti-capitalist, how does that help you in the long run, right? Their real goal is to tear down your your business. You should not be able to sell shoes. The, the government should be selling shoes. Why would you sign on to that? You don't believe that. You know, their beliefs on policing when they, we were going back and forth about abolition and, and all that kind of stuff. So what I wanted people to take away is how extreme this stuff is, how it's not beneficial, how it's wholly negative. There's nothing positive in it, which you had to believe. There's got to be something positive about the world, the country, the businesses, something, nothing positive. And that they aren't really focused on the black community. 
you know, I, I point out how BLM says cis heteropatriarchy more time than they say black men being arrested. So even if you think police are unfair to blacks, you have to admit that BLM doesn't say anything about policing anymore. And it's in their words. So when you challenge me, when I get challenged most of the time, instantly I can tell the person didn't read the book. Right. Because they're telling me, well, what you're saying is this. No, what I'm saying is I'm giving you what they're saying and I give you my belief as, as to what it means. And if you disagree, then you tell me what you think. We think all police stations, I mean, I'm sorry, all police officers, prisons, detention centers, um, um, border security, all that stuff should be abolished. You tell me what it means if it doesn't mean abolished, because that's what they said. I mean, maybe you have another definition for abolished, but that's what mm -hmm. I think it means. So they would have to tell me you know, there's something in the definition that's different, but they can't say, well, you're taking them out of context. So that's what I think is important. Well, what, what I really appreciated in your book uh, was a section on the movement for black lives. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been focused on Black Lives Matter, critical race theory, and that sort of thing. But you took a lot of time, and as you mentioned, you cite a lot of sources to provide evidence to to support your analysis. Uh, so based on your research, you had determined that Black Lives Matter, BLM, was really a mere cog in a much larger enterprise, pointing to the Movement for Black Lives, M4BL, a network of 170 organizations. Uh, so what has been the impact of BLM and M4BL on the nation? I mean, the uh, real impact, I mean, I, I, I could sense it, your book and you laid out a lot of arguments to really expose what's what's happening uh and then and what sh should we or can we do about it well it, unfortunately it's still being exposed we don't even know the, the full ramifications of it because it's still happening everybody focuses on the defund the police and obviously that was bad but they are literally running a full court press right you got nicole hannah jones's book number one in the country she also has a kid's book born on the water. You see these cute little black kids floating in water as if they just fell off a slave ship. Like, that's cool. But we're going to teach the kids. Kendi's on his second kid book. Like, like what's the popular kid book? Um, Good Night Moon. He has Good Night Racism. So they're teaching the kids to, to focus on race. No, it's no, in the high say, school. I'm sorry. No, you say Kendi. We're talking Ibram. Ibram Kendi. Kendi. Yeah, yeah. Henry Rogers. Uh, yeah, so Ibram Kendi. <laughs> yes, he's... Um, so we're talking race, you know, across the board. They are putting it to young kids who can't really fully comprehend what's going on, starting young. In high school, junior high school, history needs to be, you know, just slathered with slavery. You got the policing thing. You got, you know, they, they talk about the minimum wage. They talk about the environment, climate change. It's basically leftist political talking points, which, you know, this is a free country. You have the, the, the right to your political beliefs. I just think it's pretty deceptive and um, um, not genuine to bring this in under the guise of, hey, let's fix policing. All right, let's sit down and talk about policing. What are we going to do? Well, minimum wage, climate change, migrant rights, uh, you know, open borders. Like, whoa, whoa, I thought we were talking about policing. You haven't mentioned policing once, you know, gender and all these other things. So we haven't seen the end of where this is going to go. So how bad it's going to be and what we can do about it it's really, I, I you know, I, I know we have varying views and different people who talk on this give a lot of different things. And that's why we need many voices because no one person is really smart enough to 
come up with the answer and it's gone too far, there is no one answer. So what I will say, I think is different than most. It's hard, it's, it's doable, but it's really hard because it's gonna take people to stand up. The Part of the problem we face is also part of the advantage we have is that I mentioned earlier that the country's 330 million people. And I've started, as you talk enough, you develop the, you know, you kind of hone what you, you, how you want to approach this. And I call it the 200. We need to go after the 200. And what that is, is that most people, we hear it, you and I will pay attention to this stuff and inundated it. We see news stories every day. We, oh my God, this is getting worse. What do we do? And it's bad. I give you it's bad. I can point out, lay out all the schools, all the stuff is bad. The silver lining is most people don't pay attention to this stuff. Think about it. There's many radio shows, TV shows, podcasts, medias, all this stuff, right? And they have varying degrees of success. But if you take the biggest guys out there, you know, they got two, three, four million views. On the left, biggest, two, two million views. That's 330 million people. They're not reading the New York uh, Times. They're not reading academic papers. They're not reading the, the myriad of books that are coming out. So my point is, most people aren't being reached, which is bad, but also good, which means most people aren't being indoctrinated because they're not paying attention to this stuff, right? So what we need to do is to reach the 200 because the advantage we have as center-right people is that the left doesn't want them. Right. They look down on them like, who cares about them? As long as we control the elites who care about those people. So they're never even going to try to get them. The problem is where has the culture, which is why I talk about the culture and society evolved to or devolved. So now we're at the point that we're not going to church. We don't have community centers where we all go. We're all on social media. So there's no physical place we can go and just walk in the room and get 10,000 at a clip. So take a while. But the solution is for us. And us, I mean, logical liberals, pro-black, left-leaning people, and conservatives, all people who are against this indoctrination, anti-Americanism, all this kind of stuff, to talk to their circle. Everybody becomes a one, individual organization of one that's pushing in the same direction for the same thing. Not political. You can go fight for your Democrat or Republican stuff separately. You talk to everybody, but you talk to everybody. So you get in an Uber and you, you strike up the conversation with the Uber driver. Go pick up a book at the library and you talk, you know, start a conversation about the book. Have you know, do, do you know anyone who's read this book? Well, what do you think? Oh, you heard that. Oh, but this, right? Because the only way we reach the 200 is where they are. So the cashier at the, at the, at the um, grocery store, the server at the restaurant, the people that you work, your coworkers. And the key is you don't want to do this from a political standpoint. You don't want to just go and say, hey, Trump is great. Biden's great. Biden's bad. You just say, you know, do you think that eight-year-olds should be able to an eight-year-old boy should be able to go to school and because he wants to live as a girl. Whatever you think about that is fine, but should he be able to go to school and the school has him check a box that his parents don't know? So at school, they let him live as Lisa. So they call him Lisa. He could he sneaks in a change of clothes. He walks around in a skirt and then he changes. They let him change back when he comes home and they keep it from you and the parents don't know. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with telling some 10-year-old white kid that slavery was bad? It happened. You're part of it because you have white privilege and you need to check your privilege because you're part of the problem, right? You can teach slavery and the history and the negatives of history without laying this at the, at the feet of children. So you give the specific situation and say, are they okay with it? Because most people will say no. So that's what we have to do. But it's hard because everybody would have to be involved, be willing to do it. And most people just like this is an uncomfortable conversation. So I don't want to do it. You know what you're what you're saying, Charles, is very important. And I'm hoping that we can close by coming back 
to what you just talked about because that's how we achieve an impact. And oftentimes we look for, you know, a touchdown. Right. Really at this point, all we need is a first down. Right. <clears throat> so, but to to piggyback on the Black Lives Matter and uh, movement for, for Black Lives Enterprise. Yep. And and you may not be able to, to say anything about this uh, at at the point you are in your research, but what's happening here in America. But to what extent are you aware of the Communist Party USA and its activities? You know, in particular, John Bachtel, the, the head of the Communist Party, and their numbers may be, you know, 10,000 or less. But, you know, when they have a voice and access to the right levers, it doesn't take a lot of people to have an, an impact. But Bachtel took personal credit for the 2008 midterm elections mm -hmm. by use of his 53,000 model. Are, are you aware of any of that? Mm -mm, no. Okay. It's, and it could be just a, uh, a marginal type thing. The other thing is to what extent are you aware of OFA.org? Mm -hmm. Now it, it began as Obama for America. Yep. Then they changed it to organizing for America. And now it's known as organizing for action. Mm -hmm. And visiting their website and just following what they're doing, um, they're attempting to have a huge impact at the grassroots level that you were talking about. Right. And at one point, I saw a picture of, of the former president, and it was a CNN article where he was speaking to a group in Japan, and they were hoping to create millions of Baracks and Michelles. So to clone activists... Right. in support of an agenda that they were advancing. Have you been following that at all? And well, not in the most recent uh, iteration. You mentioned the three. I remember when it was started. And then after he left office, he and, uh, you know, he started the, the second name there, the action or whatever, where, where um, Eric Holder was in charge. And that was funny because their whole plan, plan was to, it was focused on, you know, as we talk about this voter suppression and the racist laws in, in Georgia, they were focused on redistricting, right? They wanted to, change the landscape to ensure that Democrats won the next election. So apparently that stuff is okay as long as you do it for the right people and at the right time. So it's openly saying we want to do everything legally in our power to, you know, affect the election. And that's okay. But the other side can't do it, which is, is pretty ironic. So I know they were doing that, but whatever they're doing now, I haven't seen in the last, you know, two, two or three years or so since about 19. Okay. Well, we're, we're talking structural things anyway. It's uh, things that are playing out to, to change the structure of our, of our culture politically. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it may be well-intended or not, but it's, these are activities playing out. Uh, but I want to I take us to maybe a, a, a more pressing issue that, that seems to be ignored by a lot of the Kendys and the Coates and, and whatever. And that's our inner cities. And we, we have a lot of our minorities, Blacks, Hispanics, uh, Asians, that are living in inner cities where they don't have access to quality education. Crime rates are very high and whatever. Uh, has your research looked into that at all and, and why there seems to be very little interest on the left to, to really dig deeper and to figure out what we can do to to raise the quality of life in in these pockets 
Well, I mean, I can definitely give a political answer if I wanted to, but in fairness, if I wanted to give this what I truly believe, I think that we all know what um, what you can do, what, what good intentions really mean. Like you can have the greatest intentions. It doesn't mean that you're gonna solve any problem unless you're addressing what the root cause is, as we mentioned before. And I think, again, separating the left from liberals, the left doesn't really want a solution because they want to push their agenda. Now, there may be someone who think if we get everything we want in place, all those problems will fall away. That's naive, but there's some that believe it. But for, for many, it's a power thing. So this is what we want to do. And, you know, we have to break a few eggs to make this omelet. We'll do it. But for the average liberal, they're either in the political bucket, which in case you, you, you're you always trying to win, a, win an election. So, you know, but I, I see it from Republicans too. Like, hey, we should focus on this thing. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it the next election. But there's always another election. You run every two years if you're in Congress, right? So uh, you they become stay in power focus and not fix the problem focus. So that changes thing. I mean, if, if, if your focus is on elections, then you do what you have to do to win. If your focus is on fixing this problem, you do what you have to do to fix the problem. So that's part of it. Part of it is interesting with liberals is that, and I see that to the honest liberals, who my friends who aren't like woke, they run into this dilemma. They try some liberal policies. They see they don't work. They're honest. So they're like, let's not do this. They don't work. But the liberal in me, this is them saying it, they see it, they hear it, but they can't help it. The liberal in me says that that will work better than this, but that seems cold. So I know I can't do this because we tried this, this doesn't work. So I'm not for this, but I can't really be for that either because that just doesn't seem compassionate enough. So I'm like, well, what do you do? Is there a third option? Well, I don't know. I want to try to find a third option because I don't like either of those two options. But to be honest with myself, there's probably no third option. But I, I, I'm not yet at the point that I can bring myself to that. And so that's where we are. So they can't say they have been conditioned so much to say you talk about schools. So let's say discipline is a problem, right? So they're like, we want to discipline where we can without being so focused on discipline, which is smart, right? You can't just kick every kid out of school. But they don't want to admit that some kids need to be kicked out of school either, right? So they're distracting from the other ones. You know, they're, they're, you, there has to be a happy medium. They don't know what that is. Uh, policing. They keep saying nonviolent criminals need to be released. Now, I don't necessarily agree with them on all of it. it depends on which what they're talking about. The problem is, what is your definition? My first question to them is always, what is your definition of nonviolent? I just wrote a piece about Manhattan's new DA in uh, Newsweek, and that was my very point. So he's saying he has the same view about nonviolent offenders, which I don't. That's not the hill I'm going to die on. I might disagree, but whatever. But my problem is, to many of them, a guy with a knife or a gun pointing at you and I rob you. And I say, get out, give me your money. And I walk away, but I don't shoot you. That's a nonviolent offense. To me, that's insane. That's not a nonviolent offense. That's a violent offense. But no, we're saying that. So if we redefine things as nonviolent, then of course, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to have a, a disagreement because I'm going to say, don't let that guy go. And you're going to turn it on me. Like, I thought you said you didn't want to lock up nonviolent offenders. Well, we don't agree on what nonviolent is. So that's what, where the liberals run into a lot of problem. And that, so it's not that they're just sitting around saying, we don't care about black people or just sitting around saying, we don't care about crime. Let them get shot in the face. I honestly think most of them really want it to stop. They do. Except I also don't want black people in jail. Right. Where the average black person is like, I don't want black people in jail either. But if he's violent, lock them up. Don't even think about it. They don't care. 
They're like, yeah, but yeah, I don't want you to treat blacks as a whole violent or to just judge me because I'm black. But yeah, if he's violent, he should be in jail. All my friends say that, full stop. Yet the liberal is more like, yeah, but if 18 of the people who are doing the violence in a particular neighborhood are black, I don't want to lock up 18 black people. So what can I do to not lock him up? And we're like, nothing, lock him up. But they just can't, can't, you know, really get the two together, create an understanding and actually move or act. So that's why we, we're stagnant. It's not for lack of concern or care. That's not it. It's because their convictions are so strong that they can't go against them, even if they know that they're wrong. So what do you do about that? I don't know. Because I can't for we can't get rid of them. They're in the cities, right? They tend to run the cities. You can't force them to leave. That's We see it all the time. They get on TV. It's like, this has got to stop. This is, I draw the line here. No more of this. All right, are you going to pass a policy that's going to, well, it's going to disproportionately affect blacks? Can't do it. Right? I don't care. If it disproportionately affects a black person who's violent, then don't be violent. That's my opinion. Now, if you're just snatching every black person off the street, of course that's crazy. But they can't go that far. They want to look at the outcomes. And you can't control the outcomes because you're ignoring the inputs and the inputs is would simply be more people committing violent crime. So you're going to have more. If, if that percentage is off, the other percentage is going to be off. And people, I, I've been done liberal shows and they keep spitting stats at me. But the proof is in the stats. This percentage of blacks are being arrested as opposed to white, but they're only 30% of the population. It's not fair. But you're not adding the percentage who slap people. Because if 30% more black, blacks slap somebody, then 30% more blacks should be in jail. It's pretty mm-hmm. simple. Yeah. Well, I, I think your point about definitions and the, the various meanings of things is very powerful. And I think it's probably one of the, uh, the cancers that has put our nation in such a divisive status. And they control the language. Exactly. And so uh, I was explaining to a friend of mine that when you refer to someone as an in- intellectual, they fall into one of two camps. Uh, one intellectual discovers truth and then advances that truth in pursuit of a um, a more perfect future, society, whatever. They advance it for good, for everybody, the common good. The other camp would be called progressive intellectuals, where they, where the word critical comes into play, where they actually criticize everything that preceded them, and they start with a blank slate, and they create the truth such that it supports their belief that we can pursue an imagined utopia uh, where we can perfect man on earth. And so that's that's kind of an academic uh, insertion here. But when you address the 1619 project in your most recent book, uh, you really do a magnificent job of using their words, what they're saying, and to demonstrate how disingenuous it is. And so with that, as an example, share with our viewers the difference between 1619 and 1620 and the implications. I do like that part. So I want you all to think about this in the lens of race that you see in here today. Sometimes I know it's hard for you, especially if you're more conservative, but you got to give them the argument because you got to follow the logic through. So they're saying that the country's wholly racist. It's in the DNA, but for slavery and anti-Black racism, there would be no America. America was founded basically like, hey, we need a place to put some slaves. America, let's start a country, right? So we can have slaves. That's what they're marking. So forget about 1776. They say the true founding of America was 1619. So I posited, 
I remember, you know, I'm old enough to remember Schoolhouse Rock, and we all used to sing about Plymouth Rock, right? Well, Plymouth Rock was 1620. So there's a one-year difference, 1920. Everybody at Plymouth, like everybody at Jamestown, was what we could consider today white, right? Bunch of white men started both of them. So why, if you're, if you're a 1619 project, if you're progressive, why not just give, give these people the 1620 and still say the country's racist? Nice and simple, right? Why did you need to change the year? Just say, see, yes, the country's uh, uh, 1776 and the founders drew from Plymouth. That's our founding, but they were racist, right? See, racist. But so why, why one year? Why change it? And what you find is it's because they wanted to tie their whole premise is built on slavery. It falls apart if you pull out one piece, the piece that says founded on slavery from the beginning. That piece, everything, every other essay falls apart. And the difference of the year is that Plymouth had no slaves, right? So the only difference between the two, well, not the only difference, the other difference is, which is also a big difference is the ones, the people who came from Europe, all European in 1620 were escaping religious uh, prosecution or persecution. The 1619 people were not. They were basically going on behalf of the king. You know, you get your percentage if you find this place, you know, as long as you kick back, you know, the majority of the proceeds to me, I'll give you a title. The typical kind of stuff. That's the way most colonies and most places across the world during colonialism was founded, right? You go, I send you out, you get you get something, you get your name, you get your recognition, you get fame, and then you kick up proceeds to me. This was not like that, right? So th they were different. And they were also founded on the pillars that our country eventually were founded on, you know, written uh, laws and deeds, right? Freedom of religion, all these things. Jamestown didn't have that. So that's the difference between the two. That's the reason we, we look at 1620. And that's the reason why they, they couldn't, because they couldn't say that J, uh, Plymouth was founded on anti-Black racism, because it wasn't, right? Now, eventually, because even so, eventually, being honest, there were slaves at, at Plymouth, you know, 60 years later, but they were slaves there, so you can mm. still say there were slaves there, but you can't say it was founded because of that. And that's the reason why they had to go one more year. You know, not to mention that it's not the first slaves that came in anyway, so it's factually inaccurate, and I point all that stuff out too, right? So apparently, yeah. just real quick, help me out, because, you know, again, not an academic. Is Florida in America? Because when <laughs> I was growing up, Florida was in America, and 1560 was before 1619, right? Mm -hmm. Just check it, because there were slaves, African slaves in Florida in the 1500s, just wanted to check. Thank you. Yep, yep, you're, you're right. So it's not even <clears throat> no, the first slave, so they're not even telling the truth about that. Yeah, they had a particular right. narrative they wanted to spin, and 1690 gave them the jumping point in order to spin that narrative. Well, wouldn't it be great if Americans favored intellect over emotion and false memories? It's, it's, right. It's it's really uh, it's it's almost a disease. Right. Uh, <clears throat> a couple other things, and then and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, <clears throat> you've been involved with the 1776 Unites. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, one of the first acts of this new administration was to remove that commission and 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 uh, delete any reference to it on the White House uh, websites. Yeah, they were. Uh, well, they also sp spun it differently. Right. So we had the same name, but it wasn't really the 77, 1776 Unites that did that report. But they tried to spin it. And I know some of them, you know, uh, one of them was. Um, Carol Swain, who is uh, part of 1776 Unites, and another uh, historian, Larry Schweikart, who writes a blurb for my book, 
And they were trying to spin it, you know, because sometimes Trump was in our form of speech. So because he said something about patriotism, which really, as I said at the beginning, it's not a bad word. But because he said that, they spun it as patriotic education. No, it was just filling in the blanks that you, you know, progressive left out. So they wanted to tear it apart because, ooh, 1776 is so bad. Yet they're elected officials of a country that was founded in 1776, and they claim to love the country. That's another thing that I point out that whether you agree with them or not, you can't love the country and then have nothing positive to say. So they're lying about that too. So yeah, they did that. But at 1776 Unites, really the goal is just to have an honest discourse about what they say they want, true history. So it's the reason why in my book, I think there's several books out there, really good books about the 1619 Project. But I believe mine, I, I talked to Mary Graybar regularly. She, she has a book out debunking the 1619 Project. But I believe my book is the only book that has a chapter on every essay. Right. So I, I was intentional about that because I fill in the gaps that they leave. And I know there are thousands of schools teaching the 1619 Project. So I want people to buy the book and walk into their schools, their, their, their kids school and say, if you're teaching this, I want you to also teach this. Because I know that there's people like Chris Rufo and the Goldwater Institute trying to get transparency, trying to get rid of it. You get people trying to ban CRT and this, all this other stuff. But the stuff is not going anywhere. It's going to morph and change, and they're going to teach it a different way. So my approach is that if you're going to teach it, you need to balance it, right? I spoke to a teacher who was kind of distraught about how to do it. I have no choice. The district forces me to teach this topic. But I'm not a professional in Black history. I don't know. So even if I wanted to teach nuance, I don't know enough. Here you go, mm. right? Give them the tools. So that's what we think is important. That's why 1776 Unites has a curriculum uh, teaching you about Black um, uh, excellence as opposed to victimization or just the negatives. That's why, uh, C, we are creating curriculum focused on history, government, and civics that will teach you what you need to know about the government's founding, about you know policies and legislations, about history that includes the bad, but it doesn't say America is bad. It doesn't mm -hmm. say the DNA is bad. And it fills in the blanks where 1619 says that's true. So we just need to get these um, different um, courses and topics and different things into the schools. And, and, you know, it's hard to get them to actually implement them. But we have to give the teachers who are willing to teach in a more nuanced fashion um, tools to do so. Well, what, what you're doing is very important and badly needed. Um, but before we wrap this up, Charles, uh, I want to ask you a question that's really more of a reflection uh, than anything else. Uh, your organization uh, is doing a lot of this, uh, but I am thinking that today's societal crisis is one of alienation versus alienation is a means to an end for Marxists. And we know we see them right now at play in America with BLM and, and other efforts, but it's an end for Marxists in their imagined march toward utopia, where they think we can perfect humankind. Our Western culture was grounded in a Judeo-Christian tradition that focused on liberation. Do you agree with that? And if so, how do we educate our younger generations and refresh this understanding in older generations? Oh, I 100% agree with it. And and the Judeo-Christian values are important. And I think that the best way to do that is, as I said before, 
focus on the culture, move away from politics, and just explain. You make a great point. I say it uh, at least every other interview. The biggest difference is not political. It's not even Marxism, though it's a problem. The biggest difference between most Americans, definitely conservatives, but most Americans and progressives is they think, you talk about utopia, that human nature is naturally good. Just people are born good and they're good. Anybody, therefore, anyone who falls off the straight and narrow, so to speak, are doing so because of environmental things, because of racism, because of the system, because the, the parents didn't treat them. Something must have happened to make them bad because no one can be bad. Well, people who are who either are religious but or aren't but understand the importance of Judeo-Christian values and um, the human condition know that that's not the case. And therefore, they don't go around thinking they can fix humanity by changing a law here or there, telling people, you know, repetitively telling them something. You can tell people that uh, gender is a social construct. Race is a social construct. They're, you know, black people are this. Why? You can keep telling them that, but at some point, all the kids are going to go, yeah, and then the boy is going to go out and separate boys versus girls. You can tell them not to keep score, and in here, they're going to do it, and after the game, the one kid is going to yell at the other kid, I beat you by six points yesterday, but we weren't keeping score, but I was mm -hmm. keeping it in my head. Mm -hmm. So we have to admit that's good and bad. There are just certain <laughs> things that humans do. We as a species do, whether you are an atheist and you think it's evolution, whether you believe in God and you think that's a reason, the bottom line is most normative people understand that there are some differences between men and women, that there are you know things that people will do that are innate. We are fighting our bad urges. Otherwise, we would just do bad things. If there were no laws and nobody would stop us, we would punch somebody, all of us, including me, yeah. right? You stop in those urges. You get mad, you want to punch, but you don't. They think, ah, if you want to punch somebody, it must have been something that, that, that we can fix. We can root that out of you. So because of that, that's where the, the, all this other stuff manifests itself from. So what we do is we need to teach people as young and early and often as possible that this is not the case. You're not bad. Some people are bad. But their human nature is their human nature. You can't fix everybody. There are no laws and no policies that's going to end racism or end murder as much as you can end theft or end poverty. It's all a farce. Stop it. Make the situation as best as you can for as many people as you can. Help those who fall behind. Lock up violent crim criminals and move on with your life. Stop trying to fix everybody. But that's what we need to tell everybody. How we get to them, I don't know. But I think that's the most important message we can give them. Good. Well, Charles, you are an important voice and very badly needed today in America. Yeah. And I, I encourage our viewers to to get a copy of your book and read it. It's very refreshing. It's um, authoritative. Kind of negative, though. It's kind it's of negative. A, it's authoritative in the quality of its analysis and the, the evidence that you provide, uh, the clarity of your logic. Uh, it's, it's, again, is a true intellectual product. Uh, so how can our viewers learn more about uh, your organization and, and Charles Love? Well, the easiest way when I update the site is to go to my website, thecharleslove.com. Follow me on Twitter at cdouglaslove3 and buy the books. Good. Amen. <laughs> and uh, offline, I want to talk to you more, Charles, because okay. uh, I, I think there's a lot we can do to help your mission. I appreciate so. that. Thank you. Thanks, Charles.